all love rags to riches stories, don't we? On this show, we've got a good one for you. A leading candidate for the Kentucky Oaks who was running in the sport's lowest ranks just a couple of months ago. Plus, the derby picture is now basically all set. We'll size it up for you on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Last September, a filly named Chocolate Martini made her career debut at Churchill Downs in a seven-furlong maiden special weight race. Chocolate Martini finished last of 12. Five weeks later, she ran again at Churchill, this time going a mile on turf. Like her debut, there were 12 horses in the race, and Chocolate Martini finished a little bit better. 11th. Yikes. Then, Trainer Brett Calhoun took the filly with him to the fairgrounds in New Orleans, where in early December, Chocolate Martini finished third in a mile race, moved off the turf to the main track. Okay. Then another five weeks later, she ran again on dirt at a mile. What do you think happened then? Chocolate Martini has taken a lead. Chocolate Martini into this final furlong has come clear by four. Melon toward the rail looking to hold the exact spot. It's Chocolate Martini. Gabriel Saez for Brett Calhoun. And Chocolate Martini wins in a landslide. Any win is nice, especially for a filly that had finished 12th and 11th in her first two races. But still, the win came for a purse of $15,000. Not exactly lighting the world on fire. But then, Brett Calhoun ran Chocolate Martini again just three weeks later in early February in a claiming race. The risk is always there when you run in a claiming event, and sure enough, Chocolate Martini was claimed for $25,000 by the fledgling Double Doors Racing and trainer Tom Amos. She finished fourth that February day, which she finished in New Surroundings, the barn of Tom Amos. Sixteen days later, Chocolate Martini won an allowance optional claiming event at Fairgrounds at odds of 27 to 1, and that set up this filly who'd been hopelessly beaten in her first two starts with a chance to race her way into the Kentucky Oaks. Here comes Chocolate Martini getting up to classy act. One of the good took toward the inside where she's a Julie. They come past the 16th. Eskimo Kisses looks to join on the line. Here comes Eskimo Kisses. Chocolate Martini, Chocolate Martini, and Mitchell Murrow. Chocolate Martini has won the Fairgrounds Oaks at 13 to 1. I mean, this is almost like Rudy not just making the Notre Dame football team, but becoming its starting quarterback. The connections have been pinching themselves ever since, and we're pleased to be joined here on In the Gate by two of them, members of Double Doors Racing, David Walker and Amanda DeBruzzo. What's it been like for you so far with this horse? Well, it's been uh, you know, a dream come true, Barry. It's you know, something that we just started to have fun. A couple of partners, uh, and I and Amanda, you know, threw in an anomalous amount of 
uh, of money into a partnership and claimed her for 25,000 bucks. And uh, two months later, we're going to the Kentucky Oaks. It's surreal. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we just uh, have enjoyed the Philly and enjoyed the ride. Amanda, how did you come to be partners? <laughs> it's actually a really good story. David and my husband are business partners, work partners at, at Deloitte. And I grew up going to the track, always uh, loved Arlington and going out to see the horses with my grandfather. So I was always a, a big fan since I was a, a little kid. And for my wedding, actually, my husband purchased me a share of my first racehorse, which David owned half of um, with his dad and his dad's partner. So it was actually a wedding present and that we sort of ended up kind of turning into a monster because as soon as I got to share the first racehorse, it sort of was just crazy, you know, just obsessed from there. So David and I continued on with more partnerships and investing in some other horses and nothing but excitement from there. But that's sort of kind of where it all began. So, David, why this horse? Why Chocolate Martini? Well, uh, we've been looking for a horse to claim since uh, last October. And Tom called me in January uh, of this year after she ran a really nice Ragason number in a dirt race and said, you know, this is an allowance number. So uh, let, let me take a, a look at this, you know, this filly's uh, PPs and then do a little bit of work around the physical and I'll call you back. So Tom called me a couple of days later and he said, you know, I love everything about this filly. I kind of think she's coming into her own and they put her back in for a tag. Uh, we should claim her. So uh, she ran back in February and uh, we claimed her at that point. Now, when you ran her back after that in the allowance race, she was 27 to 1 and she was eligible to be claimed. Now, Amanda, David says you're more the horse person than the others. How nervous were you that you might lose her? I mean, I think immediately when after she, you know, had such a gutsy win and, and crossed the line, you know, at 27 to 1 against those, those horses, I, I immediately were just like, please, you know, the first thing we're like, hope she didn't get claimed, you know, so. That was, we were just sort of holding our breath, waiting for Tom to call, and fortunately, we didn't lose her, and that was obviously the most important thing before we could fully um, enjoy the win, was to make sure, you know, she didn't get claimed away from us. Now, that said, what were you thinking would happen in the race? I never thought she would. I mean, at 27 to 1, you know, obviously, it was really playing on our mind. I mean, we knew what Tom thought that, you know, she can do, and we knew we were going to take a shot to see really what she was capable of, but... You know, we're really just thinking she's just going to be kind of maybe coming, making a move kind of, you know, at the end of the race and maybe getting up for a piece of it. But never imagined she would, it would set up like that and she would just battle through, you know, two other fillies like that to the line. I mean, it was, it was really a, an exciting race and a race and a really impressive win. Amanda DeBruzzo and David Walker, who are part of Double Doors Racing, are with us here on In the Gate. Now, David, you said to me 
that you hadn't even looked at this filly until the day before the fairgrounds oaks and even then you said you didn't even see the race just heard the times of the first quarter mile and half mile now i know at your job you work with numbers mainly but what about the component of watching the story unfold in flesh and blood and dirt Yeah, Barry, it's really been a lot of fun. When we got to New Orleans the day before the Fairgrounds Oaks, uh, that Friday, I called Tom and said, hey, we'd like to swing by and and see the filly. And as everyone knows, Mr. Benson had passed away earlier in the week, and Tom was at uh, the funeral. So he called me uh, shortly thereafter and said, hey, I'm I'm not there. Why don't you wait until the morning? Because I I just want to see the look on your face when you see her for the first time. And so we actually went out the next morning, and you know she's absolutely stunning, Barry. She's almost 17 hands, uh, just a beautiful filly. So it, it was worth the wait, and I'm glad Tom was there uh, with us. So tell us what happened when Chocolate Martini crossed the wire in the Fairgrounds Oaks. Yeah, so uh, I didn't watch the race. You know, had my head down, and I was standing next to Amanda and uh, I was just asking her what the splits were. And, and uh, I think whenever, you know, she had the race was very fast, the half-mile split was, uh, you know, 46 and change. And I knew at that point she had a chance because she's a closer and uh, she's got a lot of heart. I knew she, you know, w- was going to be making a move, you know, down the stretch. So I uh, was very excited. Yeah, I wasn't watching, but I, I could hear the announcer calling her name. Chocolate Martini, Chocolate Martini, I'm Metro Murrow. Chocolate Martini. When she crossed the wire, uh, Amanda's husband, Ron, t- you know, tackled me into the group in front of us. And <laughs> a little bit of a scene. You know, uh, that was my first indication that she had won. So we picked ourselves up, apologized to the folks in front of us, and, uh, you know, headed to the winter circle. It was a fantastic feeling. We all have our sort of superstitious spots that we watch the race at. So our group had gotten kind of split up. Everybody was sort of in their little pocket. So it was David, myself, and my husband were sort of standing on the top steps of the of the grandstand. And as they're coming down, it's like, I'm like, That's her. she's coming, she's coming for her three. You know, you're screaming, you're kind of riding there with them. And, I mean, when she crossed that line, I'm like, we we want you know it's just like it was like surreal i mean it was just indescribable emotion excitement i mean we all just sort of grabbed each other in a big bear hug everybody around us was cheering i mean there's there was no really other feeling like it that i've ever um experienced just the the pure joy and emotion and just you know the feeling that they give you is just it's just indescribable so now we're going to head to louisville here for the first friday of may and if you look at some of the owners of the Top Oaks contenders, you're talking about the ruler of one of the Arab Emirates, the chairman and CEO of MGM Studios, who's been a guest on the show, and Hall of Fame basketball coach Rick Patino. Now, Patino won't be at the Oaks, but what do you think it'll be like not just competing against these people, but mingling amongst some of them in the owners' boxes at Churchill Downs? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing, being that she's a $25,000 claimer. I mean, obviously, you know, these connections, you know, that we're competing against are kind of, you know, expected to be there every every year. Somebody, you know, group like us, sort of, we're, you know, sort of these underdogs and sort of this lightning in a jar Cinderella story. So I think we're going to take it all in, enjoy every minute, you know, attend every possible event we can attend, and, you know, we're just really excited for her and all the support that we have. 
And we're going to be definitely making a presence, and Team Chocolate Martini will definitely make its presence known <laughs> amongst, you know, the ownership groups and, you know, various contingencies at Churchill Downs for sure. Double doors racing may be blowing the doors off some of these well-entrenched racing figures, and we certainly wish you the best of luck. Amanda DeBruzzo and David Walker, thanks so much for a couple of moments. Thanks, Barry. Barry. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, the final Kentucky Derby preps are in the books. We can finally start to assess the field. Plus, a look back at one of the greats in this business who made his name covering horse racing, the great Bill Knack. We'll have all of that when we come back. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. Magnum Moon goes to the half-mile pole, and he is a measured half-length in front of Quip in second. And here comes Quip to the throat latch of Magnum Moon. Magnum Moon is only a half ahead in front of Quip in second. Here's Solomini in tenfold. Top of the stretch in the Arkansas Derby, and Magnum Moon cuts the corner and leads. Magnum Moon has suddenly opened up a three-and-a-half-length margin, and he's going to be an undefeated Arkansas Derby winner. Get ready, Kentucky. There's a Bad Moon on the rise! You can make it four Kentucky Derby contenders for Todd Pletcher now that Magnum Moon, he had already stamped his ticket to Arkansas, but I think if he had run a really poor race, Todd Pletcher might have thought otherwise. That was not the case at the conclusion of the Racing Festival of the South as Magnum Moon easily outlasting Quip and others to win the Arkansas Derby. And so now we finally have the players all set for the running of the Kentucky Derby. And so to really get a picture now of where we are and what we think is going to happen, we bring in our good friend, the Dean of Racing Journalists, our good friend Gary West here on In the Gate, who was at the Racing Festival of the South. What did you make of Magnum Moon, A, winning easily, B, drifting out badly in the stretch in doing so? Well, Barry, I was surprised, not that he won, but with the, the way he won, because he went right to the lead, as you know, and he went the opening half mile in 48 and change, which was very slow for the day. In the Oakland Park handicap, the pace was two full seconds faster for the opening half. So he, they allowed him to basically walk along on the early lead, a casual lead, and he was unbeatable after that. But here's what's impressive about the race. He went the last three-eighths of a mile in a mile-and-an-eighth race in 36-2, and two, 36.47 to be exact. And you don't see that very often. You don't see a horse go the last three-eighths in less than 37 seconds very often in a mile-and-an-eighth race. That was quite a finish. He finished very strongly, and that tells me he's going to be running late at Churchill Downs. I know he was on the lead here, but uh, he will not be, I don't think, close to the lead uh, at Churchill in the Kentucky Derby. He'll be one of the late runners, and he does have the power to uh, to run him down in the lane. So I was impressed with, with Magnum Moon. He's a versatile horse, and he's athletic. And he's a beautiful, beautiful horse. He trained just beautifully going uh, into the race. He was full of energy every morning, and he was a spectacle on the racetrack as he prepared for the Arkansas Derby, and then he put on a show. As for the drifting out, well, Tom Pletcher explained that, and Luis Saez also explained it as uh, his the horses shine away from the path uh, left by the starting gate, which was at the eighth pole, of course. And 
okay, that that might be true. Certainly by that point, he was a couple of lengths in front and could have been easily distracted by anything. So I recall he did something similar to that in the Rebel Stakes. He drifted out in the stretch. That's certainly something that he's going to have to take care of when he gets to Kentucky because you, you can't be making any mistakes there. But he won by four lengths. And a solid clocking, not a spectacular clocking, but again, the number that catches my eye is at 36 and change for the final three-eighths of a mile. To me, that means he's one of the major players. You know, we always look for patterns and parallels and data to try to figure out what's going to happen in a given race. Well, you talked about how Magnum Moon kind of had it his own way on a relatively slow pace in the Arkansas Derby. This is a horse who never raced as a two-year-old in the Curse of Apollo, 1882. Well, there's another horse in this race for another huge name trainer in Bob Baffert named Justify, who in the Santa Anita Derby pretty much also had it his own way. He was challenged by a good horse in Bolt Oro and was able to outlast him, but again was able to walk the dog on the front end And so I wonder if either of these horses who did not race as two-year-olds, Justify or Magnum Moon, both trained by the biggest name trainers in the business, do they have enough seasoning to get this done? Well, I think eventually we'll see a horse win the Kentucky Derby that had not raced at two, and we might see it in a couple of weeks, and it could be one of these. Uh, Magnum Moon, I think, is more versatile than Justify, and he's run four times, and although he was on the lead in Arkansas, he made a late move to win at Tampa Bay, and uh, he was just off the pace and rallied to win the Rebel Stakes. So he is a versatile horse who I think has a little more seasoning than Justify, who's going to be doing many things for the first time in his career. He has run only three times. He's never traveled, and this is amazing. He's only beaten a total of 14 horses. And when he lines up in the starting gate, of course, they'll have 19 rivals on the first Saturday in May. And in the last, well, in the last 72 Kentucky Derby winners, only one of them had never raced in a field of at least 10 starters. And that one was American Pharaoh, who was, I think, an exceptional exception. So the experience in a large field plays a factor and is, is important for some horses. And this horse has beaten a total of 14 horses in his career. He's never traveled and he's never overcome adversity. And he's going to be facing a unique confluence of circumstances at Churchill Downs, a, a maelstrom of unknown circumstances on that first Saturday in May. And will he emerge w- with a victory? Maybe if he does, I think he's going to be a great horse, justify to be that kind of horse. Certainly, he's an amazing talent. But as you point out, in the Santa Anita Derby, he didn't have much competition on the early lead. And he was able to do everything he's, his, his way as, as it pleased him. And that probably won't happen in Kentucky. So it'll be a big test for both those horses. As we get closer to the race, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of making the case for or against this horse or that horse and whatnot. But you're the right person with a long view here to ask this question. One of the angles that most of our listeners like, that I really like when you get towards the Derby, is the everyman story. 
the little guy who beats the big guys, like the people who owned Funny Side back in 2003, the guys who took the school bus to the Derby and the Preakness because they didn't have the money for the big luxury liner. I don't think there's a lot of that in this year's race. This is really a case of racing's blue bloods, both from an ownership and a trainer standpoint. I mean, Todd Pletcher is going to have four horses in this race. Windstar Farm has parts of four or five in this race. Bob Baffert is here. Even Wayne Lucas is going to be here with Bravazo. He hasn't been around in a while, but certainly one of the greatest of all time. You don't really see too many of the little guys, except maybe Mick Ruiz, the owner and trainer of Bolt Dioro. Is this a coincidence, just how it kind of falls this year? Or is the consolidation of the sport, the lower full crop in the last 10 years, leading to the rich getting richer? Well, I, I think you're on to something there, and it is a frightening trend. Horse racing has always been the most democratic of sports. But now we have the um, top stallions going to as many as 120 mayors a year and having hundreds of foals that they go to the Southern Hemisphere. And because all of those horses are controlled by Godolphin, Darley, etc., the foremost breeders and foremost breeding operations, that does concentrate the talent and, and it puts it in just a few hands. And I think we're seeing that right now with these um, horses going to the Kentucky Derby, all representing the foremost names in the sport, including Aiden O'Brien, who will be there with Mendelssohn, and I think a contender in this race. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he is a major factor in Kentucky. I totally agree. And I was so impressed with his race. And, you know, the Derby has changed a great deal since they began the point system. Because what you don't have now is a horse that was a pure sprinter who's getting into the Derby based on earnings in sprint stakes. A horse like uh, Trinniburg, for example, who ran with Bodemeister, they went, what, nine and change, ten and change on the lead, and Bodemeister still hung on to be second. If the point system were in effect or had been in effect then, I think Bodemeister would have won that derby because Trinniburg would not have qualified on points to get into the race. So the Derby has changed a great deal over the recent years, and we're seeing a concentration of talent uh, in a few hands, and, and we're seeing a, a different kind of horse that is going to Kentucky. And I think this year we might have a situation where there's not a lot of speed, and usually you can count on in the Derby frenetic pace because of that run to the first turn. You have five sixteenths of a mile to get position, and everybody has to get get as close to the rail as they can from perhaps the number 20 post position. And so that frenetic run to the first turn encourages a rapid early pace, but we might not have that this year, or maybe, maybe Mendelssohn will be on the lead and be able to control the pace. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if that happens, but it's going to be a great race. I, I think we have a very strong group, a very, very deep, talented group of three-year-olds this year. As if you couldn't tell, our good friend Gary West is with us here on In the Gate, and with his vast experience in this sport, he is really the right person to which to segue to our other main story here, which is the passing of the legendary Bill Knack, who wrote about a lot more than racing, but certainly made his name covering Secretariat's Triple Crown run in 1973, including the book Secretariat, The Making of a Champion. And if you go on YouTube and find 
the best podcast we've ever done, a video podcast entitled Secretariat Timing is Everything. You will find Bill Knack and the late Penny Channery as well as part of this wonderful roundtable that we did in Baltimore before the Preakness in 2013. And I can't tell you what an honor it was, not just to meet Penny Chenery that night, but to have Bill Knack, who I'd met before, with us that night as well. What are your favorite memories of Bill Knack, sir? Well, Bill, as you know, was the greatest turf rider of his time, I think, and so eloquent and a beautiful rider who was, I think, also a great reporter. And I had read the book Secretariat and had been reading Bill Knack for a long time when I showed up at the Kentucky Derby one year, uh, my, my first time to cover the Derby. I was a, a young reporter, and I, as I said, knew who Bill Knack was. And so I'm following the crowd around as I go from barn to barn, and I noticed this guy who looked a little disheveled and he he had a little bitty notepad that he would just write occasionally in and he just seemed to be everywhere that I wanted to go and he seemed to have access that I didn't have and and I finally said who the hell is that guy and they said someone said Bill Knack and it just you know the the shades came off my eyes and I, and I, and I saw clearly now what a, a great reporter does and, and how a great reporter gets stories. Because from then on, I, I, I watched Bill Mack and watched how he did his job because he, he was the greatest. And it's, it's so sad to hear this passing. What was the story you were telling me before we started this about him and A.J. Foyt? Well, one night, uh, Bill and I had, had dinner and... Bill was one of the great storytellers as well, and he was talking about um, some of the athletes he had written stories about. And as you know, he wrote about everything. He loved boxing, and he loved horse racing, but he was very versatile and so eloquent he could write about any subject at all. And I asked him who was the most interesting athlete he had ever uh, done a story on. And I was shocked when he told me A.J. Foyt, the great, of course, race car driver. I didn't know if I had any expectations, but certainly I didn't expect A.J. Foyt. So I asked him why A.J. Foyt, and he said because A.J. Foyt was the most charismatic guy he had met and the fiercest competitor he had known. And that made him the most fascinating subject of, of a story that he had ever written. Quite a surprise. In just a few months' time, we've lost two of the great writers of this or any generation, and Frank DeFord and Bill Knack, and the next world is a lot more eloquent for it, and we are a lot worse for it. But a wonderful man, a wonderful writer, and secretariat, probably a secretariat, not only because of his accomplishments, but because of the way Bill Knack burnished his legacy. Well, it's a tough segue to make, but Gary West, thank you so much. And as we get closer to the Kentucky Derby, I'm sure Bill Knack and Frank DeFord will be watching from somewhere. I'm, I'm sure they will. Thank you, Barry. Our thanks to Gary West, to Amanda DeBruzzo, and David Walker. The beginning of May not only means the Derby is getting close, it signals opening week for many small tracks. One of those was Hazel Park in southeastern Michigan, which for 70 years signaled that spring was back. This year, the horses started shipping into Hazel Park with deliveries of bedding, straw, and feed. 
But just before opening day came the sudden shutdown of the track, with a cryptic mention of a heavy financial bleed. The closing caught the horsemen there completely by surprise. At least that's what reports would have you think. But if you haven't seen the trend, your head's been in the sand. Track closings happen every time you blink. Unless a track makes handsome profits, which very few of them do, what they represent these days is a land grab, with racing relegated to nostalgic memories like Betamax, bell-bottom jeans, and Tab. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In the Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.